Hello and welcome. Okay, now I'm just thinking about how a couple of episodes ago you... S- wait, oh wait. I said titillating I was an onomatopoeia. Is that what you're thinking about? <laughs> yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking about. Now, let's revisit that. Okay. An onomatopoeia... So you think that an onomatopoeia just means that the word... Sounds shares- like what it is. Right, but titillating doesn't really have a sound so like an example of onomatopoeia is bang uh-huh or hiss right uh kind of what and you don't think so hiss you... is uh, hiss is onomatopoeia sure yeah sure 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 now let's go back to titillating uh-huh. for a moment. <laughs> it's mostly that it has the word tit in it right uh-huh and that's it that's uh i mean the elating part is certainly uh-huh. yeah uh... i'm el- i'm freaking elated <laughs> Is that what you're saying? I guess. Okay. Just, you're the one saying all these things on the record. Why don't you go, <laughs> go ahead and introduce this podcast? Yes, of course. It is the turmeric 12. Oh, no. Hold on. Let me take that again. It's not a turmeric. Oh, kindergarten cop over here. It's, of course, the. I mean, I've, I feel like I must have said terrific at Absolutely some point. Absolutely have. I believe. So. Third episode? The 10th. <laughs> the terrific. Um, so this is, of course, the tasteful. I've immediately disproven that. But the tasteful 12th episode of the comics podcast about... See, I feel like every time I think of something and then every time I forget what I said the previous time. It's the comics podcast... And it's called Got the Runs. Yes. <laughs> From now on, let's just call it the Comics Podcast. Oh, okay, the Comics Podcast called Got the Runs. I like this is like it's it's like how Comedy Bang Bang is America's podcast. This is the Comics Podcast. Okay. I of course am the notorious CHJ. <laughs> Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, I guess that that makes me Davy House. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sounds like a name I would give to one of my creative players at NBA 2K. <laughs> but of course, just like we announced at the end of last episode, <laughs> Oops. we're covering Why the Last Man. Chronology is hard. Yes. So what, why don't you, uh, so what exactly was the issue here? The source of the confusion wrong. was... Got the wrongs? Yeah, got the wrongs. So I used Comic Vine prolifically for figuring out credits uh, on issues and chronology of issues and things like that. It's a very helpful resource. Uh, however, I was confused in this instance because it shows, if you aren't looking at the specific issues, it shows the date that a series started because, or at least the year that a series started because when there's been multiple series with the same name, as is the case with many, many titles at the big two, you have to differentiate either by volume or by year start, uh, especially more recently when a series might have two number one issues in the same calendar year. So I was looking at Ultimate X-Men, which debuted in 2001 and thinking, ah, perfect he did swamp thing in 2000 and then he did ultimate x-men in 2001 but in fact his run on ultimate x-men did not start until 2004 so in between then we have the start of y and the start of runaways right so yes i mean i I, we probably we must have added some kind of important postscript to last episode i'm sure one of us did (laughs) (laughs) yes just like i'm sure that the won the world series (laughs) (laughs) 
all right, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I, so this issue one here of yes, we're of course covering Why the Last Man. Definitely, I would say the the breakout hit. For yeah, BKV. His name making book without a doubt. Yes. Um, according to the front cover of the first trade paperback, it is why God created comics. <laughs> <laughs> who says that uh, i believe it's the san francisco chronicle let me double check that no oh sorry <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought it was the san francisco chronicle but it's of course revolution sf.com <laughs> uh, similar in their reputability and level of prose i'm sure it is funny that with comics you can run the gamut from having a pull quote from like the new york times on uh, the front of a comic to having the like a pull quote from like the personal blog of someone who does like three reviews a week in their spare time (laughs) they're given the same like real estate and sobriety on the cover yes the four people or the five outlets that get uh billing on the first trade paperback of why are revolutionsf.com wizard the fourth rail.com Comics worth reading and ain't it cool news? See, ain't it, ain't it cool and Wizard are both like reputable yeah. at that time. The other two, yeah, I can't it, say I've heard of. It was cool as it <laughs> turned out. <laughs> I I'm reading through the deluxe editions and the uh, pull quotes are more robust. You've got Stephen King, uh, the St. Louis Post Dispatch, the L.A. Times, Boston Now, and the New York Times, all singing the praises of Why the Last Man. Yeah, I'd imagine. A, a comic that has had like five issues come out probably has not received a ton of mainstream press attention just yet yeah especially an indie comic or well a semi-indie comic so yeah even on this on the second trade you have bbc i says it's thought-provoking and marvelously entertaining and entertainment weekly says it's a seriously funny nuanced fable and it gives it an a grade hmm. wait until they read fables <laughs> A ser- seriously a fable. <laughs> uh, so I believe you've mentioned previously that you have read portions of Why before. So here's the thing. And just wait till I sneeze. We're going to leave this in. Oh, it's fading. It's gone. So here's the thing. I thought I had read some of Why the Last Man, and it's still possible that I have. I had no memory of anything I read here. Mm-hmm. So you were uh, getting twisted and turned the whole way through. Yes. I, I, in fact, I did get it twisted. Wow. I was like, whoa, all the men are freaking gone. It sounds like a freaking dream. Uh, yeah, I think, I don't know what I was conflating. in my. So in my head, like the image I have, maybe it, I took it from Beth at the start of the book, or maybe I have read some later trade or something like that. I'm not sure. But in my mind, it's it was like Yorick going around like in Australia. Like I, I he's like clambering up rocks a lot. <laughs> he does a little bit of rock clambering later on in this uh, this chunk of issues that we're talking about. But in, in like in that like very like sunny, like savannah-ish almost setting. So I don't know where I got that from, I think maybe I was conflating it a little with Walking Dead or like Last Man on Earth, the Will Forte sitcom. <laughs> no spoilers. I think you might be thinking of the last issue, but I certainly don't want to talk about that until we get there. It's possible. And I think I, it's very possible that I read a, just read a random trade that was not the first trade. Mm. So the thing that surprised me right out of the gate is so that issue number one is cover dated September 2002. Yeah. 
uh, never forget actually came out july i believe right so i don't think i had fully clocked so like i i I knew intellectually that it was vertigo but i don't think i really like thought about that and i don't think i realized how close this was to swamp thing ending because it's what probably like six months yeah it comes out about six months after swamp thing ended and he was working on the development while also like in the in the later days of swamp thing because i read a bunch of interviews with him and the artist pia guerra where they both talk about how after 9-11 they like tweaked the tone um because they were like this is kind of dark (laughs) to come out like right right after 9-11 which as we as we talked about the on this last swamp thing episode the last issue came out in october 2001 so he he had been working on this pitch probably either either right after he finished on Swamp Thing or like as Swamp Thing was wrapping up and he knew that he was going to be done on the book, he was working on this pitch. Yeah, I'd be very interested to know how much of this was like already written before 9-11 because like they're just there's obvious parallels to be made because it's so close to 9-11 and it is about like a, a large-scale catastrophic event that like reshapes the world order yeah and is weirdly political mm-hmm. i mean i guess not that weird like having now like read some of his stuff but the put the bit with the republican senators <laughs> wives is it's like is this a commentary on something <laughs> i mean on on republicanism perhaps i suppose I would be interested to know how much of this was like, obviously there has to have been some influence because I don't think you can make this book and just like, especially York starts in New York city. Yeah. I don't think you can go through that and not like have that in the back of your mind to some extent. Yeah. I I think as like from a plot perspective, it's pretty much the same. Like he talks about, so this is, it's honestly kind of crazy, but he talks about how, it was planned for 60 issues from the start, which, first of all, chill dude, you've written <laughs> one series that lasted more than five issues, <laughs> and you're coming in hot with a 60-issue plan. Uh, second of all, like the, I, don't, I just if this comic came out now and was written by any other writer besides <laughs> Brian K. Vaughn, it would get like 20 issues. <laughs> like the idea, the idea of like a 60-issue long run today is like insane. I mean, if this comic came out today, this comic wouldn't come out today. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it almost didn't come out then. Uh, I read, so like when it ended, or uh, when when Vertigo uh, folded at DC, everyone who like had ever worked at Vertigo like came out and told like their their fond recollection of Vertigo's story. And Paul Levitz, who was the publisher at DC at the time that this came out was like, I remember uh, like when the pitch for why the last man came across my desk and I said, this is stupid. <laughs> this is an adolescent fantasy and it will not last 12 issues. Uh, and then told some story about how like after it won its first Eisner, he like called the whole editorial team and creative team in and ate a crow shaped cake with them because <laughs> he was like, I'm eating crow. <laughs> no, I got it. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Anyways, the, the support. Yeah. It's weird that it exists, I guess is the best way yes. to put it. It's that that's sort of a natural segue into sort of my general feelings about which are just like, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so okay, I don't want to spoil awards talk, but like was it getting awards kind of consideration and acclaim like right out of the gate? I mean, if it has that kind of con the kind of like entertainment weekly stuff on its second mm-hmm. trade. 
uh, we can we can spoil some awards talk. It gets nominated for best new series at both the Harveys and the Eisners. Yvonne doesn't get nominated for anything. Gara doesn't get nominated for anything. They don't win any Eisners for like three years, but they and and they don't get nominated the following year. So okay, it comes out. It's like a bit of a darling, uh, especially with kind of the early adopters. It's like a grower sales wise. Um, like the first issue does fifteen thousand, and then it drops uh, to like twelve thousand with issue two. But then it slowly climbs back up so that at issue six, it's at twenty thousand, uh, and then just grows from there basically. Right. And so in terms of quality, I mean, again, like I don't want to, I don't want to set things up too hard, but. Like, do you feel it's like it starts out like pretty strong and like maintains it? Or do you think it's like it starts out pretty good and then it gets really good at some point down the line? You don't have to get into specifics about that. Yeah, I think um, I think the first issue is like a really good first issue. Like if I mm-hmm. was if again, if it came out today, if I picked up this first issue, not knowing anything about the creative team or the series or anything like that, I would be in at least through the first arc. I think the first arc and especially the second arc are a little bit finding their feet, but I think that the third arc, which is one small step, the last one that we are covering in this chunk, is where it really finds its feet. Like I think one small step is like the best of the three arcs that we are covering and that the quality kind of maintains or elevates from story to story from that point on. Okay. Because yeah, my my overall thoughts on what we so we read the first 15 issues which are like you said the first three arcs there's unmanned <laughs> the the title of the first issue which gets a last page title drop <laughs> which honestly you should have gone to prison just for that um and then there's cycles mm-hmm, which, uh, oh i just got the joke of cycles uh, oh, i mean no. it's it's partly a joke, but also it's like not not that. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 many. There's a lot of layers to cycles, and I think uh, cycles of various kinds and like the cyclical nature of life are definitely yes. a recurring theme uh, throughout the book. Yes, certainly. And then there's the third arc, which is uh, one small step, like you said. For man, am I freaking right? There, <laughs> there's there's just also like. The main thing is there's a lot of jokes that are just oh, like... yeah, they get a lot like, of mileage. Oh, man. Uh, I'm sorry. I forgot that there were no men on the planet <laughs> and I can't say that anymore. It's like, oh. They do get a lot of a lot of mileage out of uh, all of the man talk and the general man puns. Yes. That, and I think that's the thing. Like, that's what I mean about, like, this wouldn't exist nowadays, especially written by a man. Because, like, it at a lot of times it feels like such, like, a, a bit of, like, a surface read of like gender politics and all that stuff and and that's why like i mean like even comic book form like i just think like (laughs) people would be trashing this nowadays i think because it's like not very it doesn't really like go far beyond the surface of like the dynamics between men and women yeah i definitely think that while obviously like gender is necessarily kind of one of the forefront themes and points of exploration it doesn't really get into it because it is ultimately still a man's story and like a weirdly autobiographical one like the <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of brian k vaughn in yorick oh interesting yeah <laughs> That is, uh, yeah, he. I watched like a retrospective interview uh, of the two of them from like a year or two ago where he was talking about like how he started out writing it and he was like, I, I put a, a ton of myself in it. I really like loved the character. I thought he was like really a reflection of kind of who I was and where I was at. 
um and i turned it into like karen berger who's like the editor the the like lead editor at vertigo and <laughs> and she was like this is great. I love it. You know, I love that York is like kind of a dick. And he was like, <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> uh, and he is kind of a dick. It's undeniable. Yes, certainly. <laughs> but I mean, like the thing sort of my sort of takeoff on it was like, it does feel very adolescent fantasy in a way, but also like college aged fantasy where it's like, He's the last man on Earth, but he doesn't even freaking want to be the last man on Earth, actually. Like, that's not even actually a cool thing. And, like, yes, there are a bunch of beautiful women who, like, want to get with him and kiss him all the time. But also, like, it's very hard for him. Like, it's also a a real struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, He, like, Vaughn characterized... Thanks for doing those kisses, by the way. Yeah, no problem. Those are staying in. Um, Vaughn characterized the like birth of the idea as like the the sort of like ultimate extension of the the like what if i was the last man on earth fantasy like like the the root of it is kind of in a in a fantasy and he described like in high school liking this girl and thinking like if i was the only girl in high or the only guy in high school maybe she would go out with me then and then recognized the kind of like prevalence of that fantasy amongst uh young men of a certain age and was like what if <laughs> is is that a, a thing I, I feel like it's more it's usually used more the other way where it's like i wouldn't date you if you were the last man on earth yes that's the classic expression i personally i have never felt that but uh-huh. <laughs> can't say <laughs> that know. i have either <laughs> Yeah, I think some of York's immaturity is written into it and his journey, you know, the theme they hit pretty hard with Natalia uh, at the end of uh, One Small Step where she says, like, you're a good boy. And at the end of it, you might even be an okay man. That's kind of like the whole thrust of the story. Like, we are supposed to recognize that he is still kind of a boy at this stage. And um, some of his immaturity and some of his more dickish qualities are part of that. And I think also there's like a certain, you know, we talked a lot in the swamp thing about how young Vaughn is. And he's still like, he's still in his mid twenties when he's writing this. Like he's not that much older than Yorick. He was 22 when he like conceived the idea, which was the same age as Yorick. So I think that like some of that is certainly also still part of it. And there's like, there's, there's still a little bit of an immaturity to the writing in these earliest issues. Yes. And and like, it's funny that you say that about the first, and I do like the first issue as well, but it also, it feels so much like, like you can see all of like the DNA from Swamp Thing being carried over into this because it is like an issue that establishes like eight different plot lines at once and then (laughs) sort of like works them all into the main story as it goes yeah i I mean the main difference being that he has like a 60 issue roadmap and and i think a better sense of how all of those things are gonna interact with each other and and work out whereas like we talked about with swamp thing he there were like seven dangling plot threads with 11 issues left in the book and we were like some of these are gonna get wrapped up pretty quick yes exactly but let's go to the best segment on the podcast where i talk about the cover <laughs> art cover. uh just what is going on here the cover of issue one wasn't blown away honestly and that's the thing because the covers of this are really good there it's, it's so it's weird it's kind of all over the place i am gonna pull up the cover of number one because i recall thinking that it is bad <laughs> He's doing a crouch. He's in his straight jacket, right? And there's like the DNA strand and ampersands on his back. Yes. And there's like 
molecular diagrams and science things and he's just kind of doing a look right and he's got the the sort of why logo in the background yes why did i get married to <sighs> the movie <laughs> um yeah i think uh i think the covers of this series by and large are excellent it's got some of like my favorite covers ever the integration of the y motif into like so many of them is very fun and i think the first cover is pretty bad yes it's like i mean i have to look at all of the covers to make a firm judgment but i feel like it's probably the my least favorite of the covers we see in these first 15 issues like i'm just browsing through now like obviously you have the 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 best one is issue 15 <laughs> yes. where it's a skeleton in a spacesuit. Yes. we all love that one we do all love that one i like i like number eight which is the one of like him and uh sonia are, are making out with uh, the axe and the stump uh I, I mean i like most of them they're not all necessarily like super like thematic per se but they're evocative and they're like they're fun yes it's uh i think we were talking about this before we got on mic that jg jones does the covers to all of these i'm not sure if he does do the covers to all of them there's there's definitely more than one cover artist who works on the series as a whole in all the trade paperbacks that we have read so far it has jg jones credited as original series covers for all of them mm. and as the only credit so at least for the first 15 issues there you JG have it. jones does all the covers as he did for 52 as well which we're big fans of mm -hmm. uh no spoilers but i mean I, I guess i'll get to talk about it next episode because the cover of issue 16 <laughs> will be the first issue that we talk about so i'll just save it for then uh -huh. but just just get ready for that one that's that's an all-timer it's funny that you love uh number 16 so much because number 17 is my favorite cover in the series but uh we'll we'll get to it Indeed we will. Let's let's go let's let's go back sixteen issues or so. I'll start with freaking issue one. Let's let's just do that. So yeah, it's it's I don't feel the need to talk through these issue by issue because it's much more structured along the sort of arcs, but issue one I do think is like I said, a very good and strong introductory issue that kind of brings all the major players uh into into focus. I think does a good job of telling us kind of like who Yorick is. I do think it's a little sweaty plot wise, like, or, or I guess it's not, it's not so much that the issue itself is doing a lot of like expository work so much as that it sets up Yorick, who is like uh, a man of many convenient coincidences for the purposes <laughs> of the plot insofar as like his mother just so happens to be a US representative, which is going to come in very handy when he needs to like get access to the White House. <laughs> Yes, there's a there's a significant political connection. Yeah, and, and like his uh, his sister being like one of the people who survives and then is indoctrinated by the Amazons and then becomes like a trusted sort of Amazon lieutenant charged with finding this last man. Yes, there's a lot of there are a lot of convenient sort of collate or you know cross sections of all these different plot lines that Yorick just happens to be in the middle of. Also, it's so close to Friends. And he has a pet monkey. <laughs> Is it? What? Do you, what's so close to Friends about it? Oh, oh, you mean like time-wise? Yes, chronologically. I think Friends has probably premiered like Friends is probably like halfway through its run at this point, maybe a little more. Oh yeah, no, Friends started a little earlier than that, but Friends is still definitely happening at this point, uh -huh. and is very big. And <laughs> he has a pet monkey. I don't. I don't want to do too many spoilies, but I feel that the pet monkey 
does uh, make sense as we learn a bit more about uh, Ampersand's secret origin. <laughs> mm, interesting. Yes, uh, and certainly, like, it it feels less like just, like, a, he has a monkey and that's funny thing, even in these 15 issues. But in the first issue, it, it it's very friends. It uh, Yeah, it certainly is, like, what a quirky guy. He's got a monkey. He hangs upside down in his escape jacket, his, his straight jacket, and uh, shares interesting facts about the life of Elvis. Uh, he's got a sister who... Uh, I, Maybe this is my uh, my personal inexperience and naivete speaking. Seems really weird to just be getting it on in the back of an ambulance, like at work, <laughs> like while yeah. you're on call, like you're on and also, shift. Like, everyone's like very like nonchalant about oh, it. Oh yeah, when... like it knows that you're there, knows what's going on, and just is like, uh oh, there's a fire. Like knock knock. <laughs> <laughs> Saddle up. Yeah. Um, do you, are you familiar with Bringing Out the Dead, the movie? Uh, no. I think it's a, it's a Martin Scorsese movie, and it's, like, very recent. It's 1999, so it's Nick Cage as, like, a paramedic who works the graveyard shift. I'm not sure if he gets busy, but I have to imagine he does. He's something of a bad lieutenant. <laughs> yes, Port of well, New Orleans. Yes, uh, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> but yeah so maybe that's the sort of vibe he's going for like the sort of like seedy underbelly of the emergency services industry <laughs> I guess, maybe but so yeah so this issue sets up where all the main characters are at which is to say so york uh jobless york the last morick york the last morick obviously his name is shakespeare reference uh, as will be brought up many times york being the deceased friend of hamlet's who is described as a man of infinite jest and fancy or something like that uh obviously intended to evoke that same sense of york's character as well and he certainly lives up to it kind of a slacker by nature uh avoidant of responsibility naughty by nature at the nut job too nutty by nature yeah he he is in New York. He is struggling to find a job after uh, getting an English degree that he fears will be useless, which uh, I feel that uh, deep in my soul. Yes, you Snapchatted me a panel <laughs> talking about an English graduate with moderate to poor computer skills. <laughs> yes, uh, and the gritted teeth emoji. Anyways, he... The, hold on. The Nut Job 2 has an insanely stacked cast. <laughs> All right, proceed. All right, top build. As Surly, a purple squirrel, <laughs> who was at first loathed by the park's animals, but is now considered a hero for defeating Raccoon in the first film. Raccoon? He's of course, ra Raccoon. Raccoon. Wait, it, it, the character's name is just Raccoon. Yes, capital okay. R, Raccoon. Not like Raccoon, like W-R-E-C-K-E-E-C-K. -E -E <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> you just invented like three new letters. <laughs> no, just a, just a normal Raccoon. Okay. So Surly, who's the purple squirrel, mm -hmm. voiced by Will Arnett, mm -hmm. makes sense. Precious the Pug, mm. <laughs> formerly owned by bank robbers, but now the park animal's loyal friend and Frankie's wife? Jeez, mm. Louise. Maya Rudolph. <laughs> Mr. Fang, the Chinese-accented territorial oh. leader of a gang of white street mice who hates being called cute due to his small size and big blue eyes. Would you care to hazard a guess? Is it an Asian actor? Yes. Okay. What year is it? 2017. Oh, so it's got to be Ken Jeong. That's a great guess. But no, it's Jackie Chan. Oh. Who, like, That's wild. 
<laughs> like, how many American films has Jackie Chan appeared in in the last, like, ten years? Mm-hmm. Well, The Foreigner. Has that co- isn't that still to come? No, that came out, right? That's the one where his daughter is killed in uh, a car bombing. Oh, yeah, that's also from 2017. He was also in the Lego Ninjago movie. Hmm. As who? I'm seeing here Lego Ninjago. No. <laughs> oh, he's like, he's like the Will Ferrell of... That, you, you saw the Lego movie, surely. Yeah. I think he's like the Will Ferrell of Lego Ninjago. Interesting. Because like he is he is both Mr. Lou, the mysterious owner of a relic shop. Mm. Oh, Dave Franco is Lloyd the Green Ninja, okay, leader let's of the re- secret ninja. <laughs> Refocus <laughs> here on the nut job too nutty by nature. Well, yeah, so Jackie Chan is Mr. Lou and then is also Master Wu. Mm. So he has a dual role in that. Andy the female compassionate and beautiful red squirrel is Catherine Heigl, who mm-hmm. I don't recall being in a movie in recent memory. Uh, she's nope, currently this... starring on Firefly Lane. Yes, she is. But this was, in fact, her most recent movie mm-hmm. until this year's upcoming Fear of Rain. Oh, no, it just came out. So we just got a new Catherine Heigl movie. A fresh Heigl joint. A fresh Heigl. <laughs> Fear of Rain. Terrible title. Oh, man, the main character is named Rain? Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> Once again, refocus on the nut job too nutty by nature. Mayor Percival J. Muldoon. Uh. <laughs> the unscrupulous mayor of Oakton City. I believe he's a human. Uh. Bobby Moynihan. Wow. And speaking of Bobbies, we got Bobby Cannavale as Frankie, <laughs> who is my Rudolph's husband. As, and they're both pu- they're both dogs. Uh-huh. He's a French bulldog. Okay, we got... And then we're just running down all of the classic uh, comedians of the moment. Jeff Dunham as Mole, mm-hmm. a mole, <laughs> who previously worked for Raccoon. Gabriel Iglesias as Jimmy, a groundhog. Sebastian Maniscalco as Johnny, a groundhog. Do you know Sebastian Maniscalco? No. So... <laughs> This might be a mildly offensive impression, but okay. my impression of Sebastian Maniscalco's comedy, he is an Italian man, if uh-huh. you didn't guess by... Uh, his name? <laughs> yes, his name. <laughs> he had a supporting role in Green Books. So that's sort of his vibe. Mm. Um, and then my... So this is my impression of Sebastian Maniscalco's comedy. Aren't you embarrassed? <laughs> About your behavior? <laughs> that's sort of his vibe. Got it. I'm glad that I got a lot. Uh-huh. He's, I, was, uh, I was worried. He's a, a somewhat old-fashioned Italian man who doesn't understand. But he's also like, I guess he's in his 40s, but like he he plays young. But then it's also just like, I, I see I see people doing these things that I'm like, aren't you embarrassed? <laughs> he's got, it's got a bit of a, a De Niro vibe. Well, he was in The Irishman. Oh, well. <laughs> there you he go. He played Joe Gallo, the mobster. Oh, boy. I believe, spoilers for The Irishman, I believe Robert De Niro shoots him in a diner. Mm. Um, And then Peter Stormare plays Gunther, the Swedish animal control officer. So as I was saying, uh, despite nothing else really going on (laughs) nothing else in his life, Yorick has bought a ring and proposes to Beth just as the plague, as it's commonly referred to, hits killing everything with a Y chromosome on Earth. Yes, I didn't remember exactly how this was going to shake out in terms of all the men being gone. Because what this really reminded me of, actually, especially the first page where it's sort of we begin in media res and then realize that all the men are dead. Um, it reminded me of The Leftovers, which you have not seen, correct? Correct. Yeah, so The Leftovers is like, it's just like everyone, not everyone, but some small percent of the population, I think 1%, disappears very abruptly. And so I was like, is that going to happen? 
are they all gonna die and as it turns out they sort of they all sort of cough up blood yep and die they die of un- unknown causes other than coughing up blood uh weirdly yes, blood the telephones go out of commission instantly <laughs> <laughs> I, I was confused by that i have to admit yeah he's he's on the phone with beth he says will you marry he's on, me like, sat phone right yeah well she's a, she's on thing. her sat phone but he's just on like a normal phone yeah i think the idea is like it's teased like the connection is spotty and so it's just kind of a coincidence i guess but then he doesn't call her back i don't know yeah i do think the the last page being him saying hello while the the gunshot of the police officer who we meet on page one goes off is like a very cool last page good stuff anyways his girlfriend uh slash maybe fiance we do not know beth is on a student exchange program in australia and his primary concern throughout most of the book will be reuniting with her we meet his mother uh representative jennifer brown who is uh, a congresswoman representing ohio's uh non-existent 22nd (laughs) district when you looked this up. I did look that. Well, I read, uh, because this is a Brian K. Vaughn comic, it is uh, a nonstop onslaught of pop culture references and right. uh, and uh, factoids. So, of course, there are annotations out there that are just like every single uh. <laughs> pop culture reference in Why the Last Man Explained. So I was looking through one of those and it was like, Ohio doesn't have a 22nd district. Anyways, so she is there. We meet Agent 355, who is uh, an operative of the Culper Ring, the spy network formed by George Washington during the Revolutionary War, which we are now sort of led to believe has been operating as kind of the president's private uh, spy network ever since. I believe Agent 355 is also a specific historical reference to a Culper Ring agent or contact who... All we know is she was a woman. Um, I first read it as Agent 3SS because of the lettering. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. I was confused. No, she is Agent 355. She has just retrieved the amulet of Helen from Jordan. This was a rewritten passage after 9-11. She previously was stealing something from uh, a little-known group you might have now heard of, the freaking Taliban. Hmm. Who do, like... I guess it's more like Hezbollah comes up. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's funny. He talks about that all the time, that originally 355 was hitting a Taliban something, and then 9-11 happened, and then all of a sudden everyone was talking about the Taliban, and he was like, eh, it's too mainstream now. (laughs) (laughs) I had Taliban in my comic before it was cool. Now I'm going to have to switch it to anti-US activities of some description in Jordan. Anyways, she has just fled Jordan with the amulet of Helen, which she was forebodingly warned if it was ever taken out of Jordan would cause uh, a cataclysm to... Uh, Comparable to the Trojan War. Yes. A strange comparison. <laughs> I think that's meant to be like, it's ancient. Uh, we meet Dr. Allison Mann, who immediately before the plague strikes is giving birth to what she initially says is her own son, but later offhandedly refers to as her daughter, the truth yes, of that uh, yet yet to be borne out. And I believe the last major character we meet is Alter Sealan, the Israeli military uh, IDF soldier who uh, was not named by her parents, is called Alter by her comrades as a, uh, a joke that is not explained to us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And who, like, loves killing. Yeah. Big fan of war. 
yes, she's established that all these other dames want peace, but she's cool. They're ecclesofties, because... softies, but she knows that uh, a fabricated war, and it's a very subtle political commentary here. <laughs> about how war can be used to distract the people from uh, their own internal problems. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Yes, and then <laughs> the, my, I think my favorite, well, the, it's really two back-to-back panels here. One of them is the the pilot of 355's plane mm-hmm. who just looks like his face explodes <laughs> against the windshield of the plane. And then you cut to Hira with her boyfriend who is like bleeding from every conceivable yeah, every orifice. orifice. I think that sequence is really cool. The like the whole countdown sequence up to the now that we see at the beginning, and then seeing at this like the moment the plague strikes all of the characters who we've been following through the issue, and then get a better sense of like the global impact is really cool. And then, like I said, leading up to what I think is a very good last page that calls back to the beginning of the issue, and then we get a big uh, block of text that functionally is. <laughs> For the, for the purposes of the story is meant to drive home how different the world is now going to be now that the men have been all instantaneously removed and also for the, the purposes of the general gender commentary is uh, really highlighting sort of the disparity in uh, distribution of power and authority between men and women circa 2002. Oh, see, oh, see, I didn't get this until the opening of the second trade. Oh, really? Thought- so th- it's sort of the the end of the world as we know it. The in the summer of two thousand two, a plague of unknown yes. origin. Yeah. And so when I got to that point, I was like, "Whoa, this has given me a lot of background information that <laughs> was not previously established." But so is it? You're you're reading from like sort of the deluxe collected. Is it all in? It's not all in one volume, is it? Uh, no, it's spread out across five volumes. The first okay. one collects uh, the first ten issues. Yeah. So I it runs it after the first issue, which I believe is also how it came out. Was just like the end of the first issue is like. A list of like facts about how the death of all men has impacted the world right yeah i guess this so does this at the bottom part have like it sort of summarizes the first trade as well so maybe it, oh, doesn't, no, it doesn't have all that yeah, it doesn't have all that stuff mine uh or the the welcome to the unmanned world is the title of it and it ends with worldwide 85 percent of all government representatives are now dead as are 100 percent of catholic priests muslim imams and orthodox jewish rabbis okay that makes sense because that so mine has that and then continues on with still alive, alive however is yorick brown the last man on earth etc etc yes so everything the conceit of the series is everything with a y chromosome is now dead including sperm and embryos except for yorick and his pet monkey ampersand the cause of the plague is unknown the reason why yorick or ampersand survived is unknown both we will get lots of theories about why uh throughout the course of the series i believe the only two or the only we've been presented with one of each uh which is the thought that by taking the amulet of Helen out of Jordan, 355 has caused it. And Yorick believes that his ring has somehow protected him uh, from his dying. magical yes, ring. Yes, his magic and ring. And also, well, I guess this is getting ahead of it, but and also that Dr. Man. Yes. Well, Dr. Man, as, as the men are dying, Dr. Man says, this is all my fault. Uh, but we don't yes. know why she believes that yet at this point. And really, her logic is a little flimsy once we do find out. <laughs> well, 
Uh, uh, do we find out? Well, we we hear at some point that she she basically just says like, just as my baby was being born, all of the men died. Oh, so right, this right, is right. my fault somehow. Right. So she doesn't have a working theory other than that she made specific note of that. Yes. Other than that, like God is punishing the world, I guess. But yes. And so we. Sorry, you have something. Else oh no, to say I was just this? gonna. I was just gonna move us along through the remainder of this arc, which moves pretty briskly after that first issue yes i was gonna say that we we pretty immediately skip ahead two months which makes sense because you, you have to establish some kind of new world order rather than just everyone freaking out yeah york is still alive he has a small pebus <laughs> according to this supermodel that he meets at least <laughs> yes uh, a, a common trend throughout the book is just that he meets all these like random gorgeous women. Yeah, the the general state of affairs is uh, global chaos. Uh, we see three fifty five digging up the minister or the secretary of agriculture who's like gone to ground and kind of is like there is no more government, so I guess I'm just gonna chill at home um, to tell her that she is now the president and escort her to Washington, which is where Yorick also is looking for his mother. Uh, who is like helping keep the government afloat? Yes, uh, the the Secretary of Agriculture, who is the president, because everyone above her has either died, either was a man, or died in the, like the subsequent immediate fallout of the death, right. which is like I believe plane the, crashes the yeah the initial kind of next in line who the secretary of agriculture thinks is president uh, was like in a plane uh, or a helicopter or something when it happened and the right. pilot died and the plane went down. <sighs> Trying to come up with a designated survivor joke or reference of some kind and unable to do so. So we'll move right along. I did have that same thought that she is <laughs> a bit of a designated survivor. Um, so York is able to eventually make his way to the White House and reconnect with his mother who wants him to go in search of Dr. Mann who is a, a, a leading expert in cloning, which previously she'd been politically opposed to, but now recognizes is kind of the only way that they're going to be able to repopulate the Earth. Yes, the important uh, designation, which is mentioned in the first issue, is that Yorick's mom is a Democrat, but she's very anti-abortion. That's like her big like stump issue mm -hmm. that she votes with the Republicans on. Yes, uh, and calls out her like party whip for... Uh, doing the same with gun control and it's all very 2002 <laughs> yes there's a hillary joke there is hillary catches a crazy stray <laughs> the hillary joke york says when the hell did women get so petty and power hungry and his mother says didn't you vote for hillary <laughs> just like <laughs> which i didn't even did she so i guess she must have run in 2000 I, right i guess like I the democratic primary i didn't I even know that election I don't know if I did either. Anyways, yes, they their reunion is interrupted by an attack on the White House by who asks Yorick terrorists? His mother, of no. course, replies with the ultimate zinger, worse, Republicans. <laughs> uh, although I did think to myself, like, whoa, imagine a scenario where during a global emergency, Republicans would try to attack the seat of government power. <laughs> uh-huh is that good is that something it's something certainly <laughs> yes and and also we get the idea that yorick really wants to go to australia which seems highly irresponsible as everyone tells him mm -hmm. but he seems very dead set on this yes he wants uh he wants his sweet bethy 
Yeah, this this stuff is all quite bizarre feeling. Like the whole White House segment uh, is very weird. The Republican attackers, who are all the wives of congressmen who want to inherit their husbands' seats, murder a Secret Service agent by accident, uh, and then the president shows up with three fifty five to defuse the conflict shortly after that. And the the whole fallout of it is very bizarre, considering they they have this conversation standing over the body of a secret service agent and the civilian who just accidentally murdered her and the like the the exchange is bizarre like they're advocating for like a new constitution they're realizing that the secretary of agriculture is now the president it's just a very like weird series of events when you consider that like these two parties recently exchanged gunfire, <laughs> resulting in two deaths. The emotions seem running, like, relatively cool, all things considered. Yeah, like, considering that the, on on one page, we witnessed two deaths, and then three pages later, you have uh, Jennifer Brown being like, oh, that's my son Yorick, while, like, face-palming, because <laughs> he's just made his grand entry. Which is a good bit, to be fair. It is a good bit. But uh, but yes, they are able to defuse the situation in spite of the two very recently occurred murders that everyone forgets about relatively quickly. And Agent 355 is tasked with escorting York to um, go and meet Dr. Mann. Meanwhile, a mysterious party, we'll call her Madam Director <laughs> for the purposes of <laughs> concealing it is her truly, identity. It is just it's, Madam Director. It's, crazy that he goes right back to like there's, there's mysterious... so many wells he goes directly back to <laughs> it's just the crazy whole book that is like them. it's just like a, it's just a, like a sort of a better version of a lot of swamp thing yeah we will eventually learn that this person is uh york's mother representative jennifer brown but at the time and Wait, for... I thought it's the president no no it's it's his mom oh right, right right yes sorry i knew that but for quite a while her identity is concealed anyways she passes on intel to alter that there is a man who is still alive and where she can find him and also like i know you knew this but like no one ever thought it wasn't his mom oh yeah (laughs) like the the first time you see like i mean he loves to do the same thing he would do with madam director which is like show them from like the chin down yeah or like the shadowed face but the very first time that you see who's on the other end of the line even though her identity isn't revealed there's like a huge like (laughs) office of the president like logo right there or something i i don't know if maybe the misdirect is that you're supposed to think that it's the president and like like well she's a republican president so maybe Maybe she's like secretly working right. against the interests of this Democratic Congresswoman or what. But yeah, there there was I, I don't recall even when I first read it, which to be fair is like 10 years ago now. But I don't recall ever thinking it was anyone other than his mom. Yes, because like it wouldn't be a reveal otherwise. <laughs> like it would have been revealed in the first issue. Like it, it would have just shown her face. Yeah. But the fact that it gets saved to be a reveal makes it very obvious that it's his mom but yes and then it sort of it sets up the central conceit of the book at least as far as we've gotten which is it's not safe for yorick to remain in any one place because everything's so crazy and so he is instead going to move around the united states with 355 as his bodyguard on a never-ending road trip with 355 and eventually dr man as well yes which is basically again what swamp thing is like they're just sort of going around and then they sort of figure out a purpose and then they go to that place to do that yep, thing. that's true that's <laughs> that's fair and true cannot deny it 
at this point, I believe, is when we're introduced to the Amazons who have been sort of alluded to in dialogue throughout beforehand, but who we meet in earnest at the Washington Monument, which has been converted into a memorial for all men on account of how penile it is. Yes, I thought that's a good bit. <laughs> it is a pretty good bit. I like the uh, exchange that he has with um, the girl at the monument, too, where they're like... I don't know. It's it feels like a hacky joke to have a the who joke uh, in a a list of musical artists, but I like yeah the Dylan Bowie, the rest of the Beatles, all of the Eels, the Who, them too. <laughs> yes, there's an Eels reference, uh... which is a real like <laughs> early two thousands comic book writer. I hate it, but I love it. The one I really hate that was is also from this issue is Yorick saying. I'd have an easier time finding a fellow Three Stooges fan. Like, A, why did you bring that up? B, why do you like the Three Stooges? <laughs> of course he likes the Three Stooges. I guess so, yeah. Anyways, yes, they they are attacked by uh, Amazons who York confronts for the purposes of acquiring their motorcycles, but accidentally also tips where he and 355 are headed to next. And... The Amazon who overhears him takes that information back and his sister Hero is tasked with bringing in the or bringing down the last man, the last uh, oppressor, I believe he's commonly referred to by Victoria, the leader of the Amazons. Yes. So we get the reveal that Hero is with the Amazons, but she does not know at this point that Yorick is the last man. Yes. Um, And this is also like... Is it in this issue or a previous issue that we sort of get into the like the whole idea of like trans men <laughs> being like a thing, which is really only ever paid lip service to, except for that one woman with the beard. Oh, yeah, who's, like a... as a sex worker. Yeah, yes. the, I think I think the idea of trans men is a big blind spot of the series and something that as they're like currently working on the development of a TV show is one of like the first things they've acknowledged uh, as far as like, there's going to be a lot more <laughs> to say about like the fact that trans people exist uh, in the TV show than there is in the comic. But yeah, so the, I believe the girl that he meets at the monument hates the Amazons because they killed her boyfriend. And that's really the only mention we get until, yeah, until we meet the sex worker on the train who is jealous of uh, how how close York is to passing. And also refers to herself as a woman. Yes. Like, acknowledges, like, I'm a woman who's dressed as a man, mm -hmm. which, you know, is, is a valid experience of transness, but not necessarily one that... I would say the overwhelming majority of people share. Mm -hmm. And and may like that may speak to more the the world of uh why the last man that it makes sense now for a sex worker to be like, well, that's true. I guess I guess I'll like throw on the beard because that's what like customers are looking for. Yes, I'm a bit of a weird beard. <laughs> it's a bit of a science um, beard. <laughs> big science. <laughs> um wow, what a series of references. Seriously. <laughs> Uh, that, so, do we ever get any backstory about Victoria? Because we're introduced to her. She loves talking about chess. Yeah, she She's brags about how she master. beat Billy Fisher. Billy Fisher. Bobby Fisher? <laughs> uh, I can't remember who it is. Yeah, she beat Manga Carlson. <laughs> Pronounced Manja, first of all. <laughs> Aren't you embarrassed? <laughs> but yes, so she she beat Bobby Fischer in a private chess match when she was 13. Yes, she's a chess never, genius. Like, 
we never really get any explanation of like who she is or how she became the leader of these people. No, not at really. At least as far as I've heard. Her, her broader importance is more uh, the like lingering impact uh, of her on Hero. But I don't, yeah, I don't think we really learn anything more about her. She beat Bobby Fischer at chess. Uh, she leads the Amazons. She brainwashes a lot of women. <laughs> And, yes. Uh, Another thing about the Amazons, which uh, I only bring up for one specific reason, is that they apparently burn off one of their breasts, mm. which I don't understand the mechanism of that. But um, and, but then issue seven, which has like a bunch of Amazons on the cover. So, you know, the classic Amazon, they cut off one of their breasts because it's easier to hold a bow. Mm-hmm. But then on in the issue, which shows one of the Amazons like drawing back a bow mm-hmm. it's the wrong it's the wrong <laughs> side yeah Which, you know i just i was totally smh'ing shaking my head yes it happens and then we get we get brian Cavon's favorite thing which is a combination of sex and violence at the beginning <laughs> of issue five i think where he has this vision of beth and she's naked but she's also bloody uh, yes, it's a very foreboding dream that he's having where she tells him not to come for her and that he knows why, but of course he doesn't know why, the last man. And then and then he, you know, rouses and they go on to successfully meet uh, Dr. Mann and, and they escape the lab with her, narrowly beating out Sadie and Alter and their IDF platoon who have come to the lab yes one thing that we didn't mention and that gets kind of tossed off pretty quickly is that alter is a appears to be like leading the israeli army Yeah, she's a general now i think she was like a a colonel before yeah and but is also like invading neighboring nations yeah uh it's pretty clear that in like the two-month time gap israel under alters like military leadership has leveraged the fact that most of the women who live there have military experience of some kind to violently suppress <laughs> all of their neighboring uh, states. Yes, they appear to be aggressively expanding. But then also like Alter, who is apparently leading all these efforts and like creating like the central strategy, has time to just piece it to the United States <laughs> and personally hunt down Yorick. Yeah, that is a little crazy. Uh, like obviously having the last living man is an important national resource but also her intel is well i got a call from someone in the states (laughs) i heard a man existed (laughs) rumor has it a little a little crazy but appears to be believable enough to her that she has gone there and torched dr man's lab which means that the new the latest kind of uh step on the road trip is that they will have to go to her contingency site in california so the three of them are uh, are now setting out on what yorick likens to sort of a wizard of oz-esque journey to uh not the emerald city but the chocolate city sunshine city sunshine state yeah sure so yes they sort of lay out their options which are go back to dc go to california or go to australia and it ends undecided with yeah obviously everyone is like we're not going to australia (laughs) (laughs) yes it's true um yes but then it ends with them standing at like a y-shaped intersection as they yes exactly as they I like uh, I like that artistic that that visual motif. I wouldn't say, as, as is true of much of the comic, I wouldn't say it's subtle, but it is effective. No, I I like it as well. Where it's just like it is it is very like 
It's a big Y. That's what his name is. <laughs> <laughs> That's what kind of chromosome he has. Yes. So we get to know a little bit more about Dr. Man uh, throughout this issue, which launches off uh, the Cycles storyline. Uh, specifically, the point of uh, interest I find most relevant is that she changed her last name from Matsumori to Man to <laughs> annoy her father, taking the name from Man's Chinese theater. <laughs> Then go walk in front of Chinese theater. <laughs> Mostly brought that up to bait you uh, into saying that exact thing. <laughs> Success. But um, I don't... Uh, she she describes it as kishi and faux Asian. Uh, is is man faux Asian? Like, I well, don't... Isn't it, isn't it Grauman's? Yeah, it is. Let's do some research here. You're right, it is. And Grauman isn't... Like, isn't that just like a guy? Sid, yeah, Sid Grauman, who is not Asian. He is Jewish. Another group that gets brought up a lot in this book. But yeah, it's like he had like like the Egyptian theater. Mm. He had he like, had all this sort of like Orientalist uh, themed theaters. Yes, or at least like exoticist. Yeah. Um. So yes, it is not specifically Chinese in any sense. Interesting. Other than that man's chinese theater exists we also get some crucial age talk uh dr man is 31 york is 22 i deduced through context clues that 355 is 25 so um whoa yeah eternal slacker york in the company of some accomplished uh young women indeed um okay here's something that i wanted to bring up because and it's something that sort of in issue six, we get <laughs> a very direct taste of is, do you think that he had really considered, Brian K. Vaughn this is, do you think that he had really considered the challenge he was presenting himself in creating a book that was going to be almost exclusively populated by women? In like, in what sense? In the sense of like, there's like the challenge that that would present to him, like having to write on, almost entirely female characters. Right, I see. I, I think, I think that, it was just coming out at a time where that wasn't really a concern. Like I read an interview with Pia Guerra from like while the book was coming out and like relatively close to the start, I think from like 2004, maybe it's hard. It's funny because we're like, right when the book comes out, sort of like right on the cusp of internet media really being like a thing. So it's kind of hard to, for like a small comic book like this, it's it's hard to find like interviews with them from close to the start of the series. It's really hard to find reviews of the book from... Did you try revolutionsf.com? <laughs> I didn't try revolutionsf.com, I admit. But yeah, it's hard to find like contemporary reviews, things like that. But anyways, people would ask Pia Guerra stuff about like that all the time, either, either like... Is it like, do you think Brian does a good job writing the female characters or like how much input do you have? Or like, you know, do, are you specifically choosing to portray female characters in particular ways? And it's in, it's very like of the time to read her responses, which are almost uniformly like, I don't really think that has anything to do with anything. Like Brian's a good writer. I'm a good artist. We trust each other. And I think that that like shows in how like people are connecting with the characters. So I, I think he considered it in so far as like, that was always kind of going to be a question that was asked. But I also think that it was just a time when it would be, I guess, more accepted that having a man writing a cast of almost entirely female characters wasn't necessarily something that should like give pause and like 
I, I, I haven't read anything from him about it, but at least Pia Guerra seems to actively like push back against the idea that he shouldn't be writing it or that it's like, and I think part of that is because it is still so centered on like a male perspective as the point of view character. But yeah, certainly. But yeah, I, I don't think it was something that really concerned the creative team at the time. Yeah. And also like the fact that Pia Guerra is a co-creator of the book as well, mm-hmm. not just like the artist behind it. Yeah probably has an impact on that as well but yes it, it does feel like it's from the time when like it would be like it's more progressive than a man is writing it right like it doesn't have to be a woman writing about women's things whereas now i think the perspective has shifted a little um so revolutionsf.com mm-hmm. uh as recently as so gary mitchell mm-hmm. uh, i'm gonna try i'm trying to find more information on gary see if he has a twitter or something but as recently as august 18th 2020 was writing slipped discs, <laughs> a uh-huh. weekly column. No, it's a weekly column about physical media <laughs> that's being released. <laughs> I like that title for a <laughs> column yeah, about physical good. media. And it was it was coming out on a weekly basis up until August 18th, 2020, at which point the blog abruptly stopped. So I hope everything's okay with Gary. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to search him out. So they are riding uh, the rails. They have used uh, the motorcycles that they stole from the Amazons to bribe their way onto uh, a train that is uh, headed west. They're going to California until pirates, question mark, attack them on the train. (laughs) Yeah, they really are pirates. (laughs) There's a great throw mama from the train reference as York is thrown from the train, (laughs) which necessitates... uh, Dr. Man and 355 also getting off the train, which leaves them stranded in, as we will learn, the middle of Ohio. Brian K. Vaughn, an Ohio native, it might surprise you to learn. (laughs) Yes. Well, York was, of course, born in Cleveland, as we all know. And, of course, Brian K. Vaughn is one of the three Cleveland Bryans of comics, the other two being Brian Azzarello and Brian Michael Bendis. All all Brian's from Cleveland who grew up Weird. to be comics writers. I believe he himself coined that and did it like at <laughs> this early stage of career because he was like, I mostly wanted people to think of me also when they thought of these two other better writers or like more famous <laughs> writers. But now like the, I'd say those guys now, are yeah, it's on legit. the same level. Yeah. <laughs> the reason that I also the reason that I broached that topic of conversation in the first place was because the woman who he's talking to to try and get train passage when they get on this train says you think you're the only girl out there in search of tampons and haagen <laughs> which is cool uh, reminds me i've got some haagen in the freezer to eat later so did you because you got my snapchat about vietnamese coffee ice cream last night yeah yeah i frowned at it in confusion mostly is dimitri's Why? like the evolutionary next step of cafe dimitri or is it a separate <laughs> That's thing a great question i don't know um, it was just a place I ordered from. That was the that place looked... that we got you that uh, cheesecake on your birthday from. Yeah, I, not- I noticed that as well. Yeah, I think it was just close to me. But anyways, I accidentally left it on the counter. Oh, so. no. Yeah, I put it back in the freezer. I don't so we'll know if that... See... <laughs> I know, I don't, I don't know. Consistency-wise, it doesn't... But does it have stuff in it? No, it doesn't. Okay, well, that's good at least. Uh, anyways, in this issue, we also meet Natalia for the first time, who will come to be uh, a central player in the one small step arc, but who 
uh, for several appearances will mostly be the crazy Russian woman ranting about space, which uh, foreboding, foreshadowing. Yes, she is the like. It's a this is a very. It feels like a very Brian K. Vaughn thing to be like. We have our central story, and then we have like a B story where we don't fully understand what's happening with the character, but like they're trying to do something, and we can just assume that they're going to cross paths eventually yeah well it's funny because she's not even really like a b story she's more like a recurring character yeah she like keeps wandering into the like a and b stories for like one page to like get kicked out of somewhere (laughs) because people barely understand what she's saying and think she's crazy did you uh, did you like clue into what where that was leading when you first encountered her or like before before it was like people in space yeah yes i did so we uh, smash cut to Marisville where Yorick's unconscious body is stumbled upon by Sonia. Sonia Blade. <laughs> Good joke. Uh, yes. One of the residents of Marisville, mm-hmm. who, which is just a normal town, <laughs> which has no men <laughs> in it. Nothing going on. No subtle allusions to anything in particular. Nope. Um, but surprisingly is actually more sinister than it seems as we find out <laughs> that right right when you guys i was scrolling through pages and right when we i got to the page where yorick wakes up in sonia's house and you see his butt was when he gasped (laughs) uh i do like that she finds out his name from his card his membership card for the international brotherhood of magicians we demand to be taken seriously ibm (laughs) indeed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, indeed um, you I do absolutely despise the uh interaction that they have about david bowie mostly because yes. i way more so despise the interaction that york has with beth in his lead up to pro- his proposal where Your favorite poofy is miller's crossing <laughs> yeah it's terrible oh my gosh a girl that likes david bowie and miller's crossing i'm freaking out uh it uh, yeah it speaks to yorick like certainly. that's the kind well yes but i also think that like that's a very like real bro like i think that's what you're talking about where it's like some of the immaturity is written in and some of it is just like that's sort of who this guy is at this point like some of it is i think this is written or conceived by a guy aged like 22 to 25 yes and i I think that like it's like a girl likes cool movies i'm freaking out is like a very is a sentiment that the real Brian Cape on would have. <laughs> uh, anyways, she knows the lyrics to fame, which causes him to say a boy. And meanwhile, the, the Amazons are hot on the trail, tracking them down via motorcycles, which is another cycle. Yes. Another, another cycle to be sure. Yeah. So uh, obviously he sees very early that, you know, something's up with Marisville. Everyone is very apprehensive when they find out that 355 is, uh, employed by the government in some capacity. What did you, did you have any idea or any theories about what was going on before they revealed what it was? I, I thought, and I couldn't quite work it out because my theory didn't quite make sense, but I thought cause, because the big clue is that Lydia, the oldest one, makes reference to that they all have, they've had plenty of experience making do without any men around. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it was something to the effect of like, it was like a community of women where like they killed all the men or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, that doesn't really make, make sense. <laughs> yes, I do like also that Lydia is the like World War II era working woman who says loose lips sink ships. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And of course, shortly after this, it is revealed that the reason 
that there are no men or well and we know the reason there are no men but the reason that they are running so smoothly is because they are all members of a women's prison which has relocated to marisville yeah the actual facility is like a mile away uh and they have just moved into like the the town that where like all the guards lived the warden let them out after most of the the guards had cleared out uh, and then also cleared out herself this is also roughly when yorick um hero gets confirmation that uh yorick is definitely the one who she's after and uh we see sort of victoria's it's like a combination of like a weird charisma slash like force of will slash like just like some pretty standard <laughs> brainwashing tactics to kind of walk Hero through processing that and coming to the point where she is ready to kill him on behalf of the Amazons. Convinced by a solid punch in the face, which is, uh, you know, never fails. Yes, and then at the same time, you, you already mentioned that 355 is like hits her head on a rock and is yeah, out, of she's out of commission that's a great uh, that's a great reveal of <laughs> of that it's a good panel yes where it cuts we sort of yeah. zoom out dr dr man is uh it is fine and is like it's a miracle right 355 and then we see 355 lying with like unseeing eyes <laughs> staring blankly out with her head on a rock i did think that i i was i was cut i was torn between they wouldn't kill her and she looks really dead. <laughs> she does look very dead in that panel. But yes, so she's recovering in Marisville while uh, Yorick and Sonia go off to uh, chop lumber. Chop wood, am I right? <laughs> chop it up. At which point she uh, expresses a desire to leave Marisville with him. They are Mackin, and then she ultimately reveals out of a sense of guilt i guess kind of that that he's kissed her without knowing like the truth about her this is when she reveals that everyone in marisville is uh, a convicted felon to which he has a reasonable and <laughs> rational response to <laughs> yes you run <laughs> like there's no reason for him to do this <laughs> which is why i i just shook my head at it i was like he just she asks him to keep it a secret obviously and then he immediately goes back into the house and yells with like 10 people from Marisville are just like, they're a bunch of crooks. Yeah, it is a funny smash cut, though. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny, but it is like, <laughs> it is just like, why did you do this? <laughs> like, it was not at all necessary. It is, it is a crazy response. His rant about how they still owe a debt to society. I guess this is like really where we see the level of immaturity. But the, this feels like a weird expression for like someone who we have heard voted for hillary and ralph nader is like these people are dead to society yes it really feels like it's just like i want someone to advance this perspective but there aren't <laughs> enough characters in the book for like me to have someone who feels this way yeah. so it has to be the, the only conscious person who is not uh, a convicted criminal <laughs> in this scene is yorick uh, i guess yes, dr exactly. man is there too but uh, but she doesn't know about it uh, until he blurts it out and also i guess we don't ever really see what her response to it is other than she makes a joke about being in john ashcroft's hell at some point Yes, and she gets surprised. Yes, she is surprised. And then also in this issue, we get this little seed of something where uh, 355 is sort of like sleep talking to Dr. Man, who is nursing her back to health, and then says, I want you, to which Dr. Man looks 
somewhat intrigued, I would say. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but then we we find out, no, she's actually talking about Yorick, mm. which is something that doesn't necessarily get paid off in these issues, but definitely comes up a couple more times and is obviously being seeded towards something. Indeed. This Marysville thing... So, The Walking Dead, which is something that I felt took a lot of influence from this in a lot of ways in terms of the sort of like the roving group and also like the way that these sort of like societies of convenience sort of spring up and their weird like belief systems and all that stuff. There was a prison in that. There was a prison there were in no, that. But there were no prisoners in it, right? It was empty? Um, or were there? No, there. I don't think it's been a long time since I read The Walking Dead, but I, my recollection of it is that a bunch of people moved into a prison because it was so secure and so like defensible. Yeah, I remember that part, but I but there were no like people who I, were just yeah. Or maybe I there were. A couple. I don't think any of them were actual prisoners of the prison facility. I'm also not sure that this came out before The Walking Dead. It definitely came out before the prison arc. Okay, yeah, number one came out in 2003. So there you have it. I wouldn't, uh, yeah, I w- it's it's weird to think that Brian K. Vaughn could potentially have been influential on The Walking Dead because it do- the timeline just feels wrong on that for some reason, but it definitely is possible, especially by the time it gets to the prison stuff, which is in like issue 40 of The Walking Dead. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's not even, I think that like, they were really that similar, but it just gave me like some of the same vibes because yeah, it's I got guess a certain like they're both tone and uh, and like the post-apocalyptic feel of it. Yes, post-apocalyptic, but also like um, very immediately post-apocalyptic. So you're yeah, sort of and, like and like weirdly scavenging the bones of the ex- existing society and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then everyone shows up. Yeah, the, the Amazons show roll up. up, and Hero is prepared uh to kill yep she has she has some stats about women (laughs) she has some stats about women however despite the fact that yorick has just claimed that uh, these women owe a debt to society they basically say not a chance beat it where if you want him you're gonna have to go through us great sequence imo yeah i like it great uh great great beat panel where they kind of have to think about it <laughs> <laughs> yes they all kind of look at each other and then lydia confirms it it uh, it looks as though the confrontation is going to end with all of the uh, women dying but yorick instead voluntarily turns himself over uh and victoria is preparing to execute him when uh sonia well hold on hold on he comes out and he says, here comes your man, which Brian K. Vaughn must have been cheering. <laughs> Control S. <laughs> like, take the like, afternoon off after that line. <laughs> I can't imagine how excited he was to like, it's like, it's the Pixies and it's a band <laughs> joke. And it's like a like big moment in the issue. Like, he must have been so happy with himself. Yeah, I can see, I can see uh, punching the clock at like two o'clock in the afternoon and being like, <laughs> "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll come back fresh to this one in the morning because I just wrote the perfect page." <laughs> we'll take it from the top tomorrow. But yes, she is about to uh, shoot York in the head and says it's the fall of man when Sonia clutches a huge axe throw. Here's something I just realized. Like a page before that happens, Yorick refers to her as you hatchet faced piece of shit. <laughs> Which is pretty funny. <laughs> that is pretty funny and I do like it and I didn't notice it. 
Yes, she she kills Victoria and Hero in retaliation uh, shoots Sonia in the heart. Now, Sonia has some dying words for Yorick. She mentions she brings up Beth and then says, I saw this documentary like this. once on TV. It was about lions. They said that lions dot dot dot. And then she dies. What's the deal? I think so. Basically, I think that she was like sort of going into the it's like the lions like how it's like the lions are actually like the the hunters and the, like the women are the hunters in that society yes, the women are the women are the hunters in the lion society which is like a very common thing that people bring up a lot and so i think that like it's sort of like rather than having her like go through this speech which is like a little hackneyed she just like <laughs> she just alludes to it and then like dies before she can even like say her piece about the lions the theory that i read because i was that also occurred to me, but I was like, that seems like a weird thing to say at this moment. Apparently, the like going theory is that she was going to bring up like that lions have like one male who basically has like a harem, <laughs> right? And and that she was basically going to be like, you can chill about Beth. I'm sure she's great, but hey, you know, lions are functionally <laughs> polyamorous and maybe you could be too yes but yorick is too noble for yorick that. is too noble and he is going to kill hero until she <laughs> she calls him out on pretending to know more than he actually does in a, an extremely relatable sequence <laughs> for certain yes. participants in this call and he is ultimately talked out of it he tells her that she crossed the rubicon and she calls on him to explain what that means <laughs> <laughs> in the moment and unable to do so <laughs> he uh he declines to shoot her particularly because she said that's dad always liked you best because you were the smart one but you're not actually that smart you just like remember <laughs> like enough to seem smart basically yes knowing knowing words and knowing when to use them but not actually knowing what they mean <laughs> is not something i relate to <laughs> Uh, anyways, um, invoking the family connection seems to be what convinces him not to shoot her. He says, you're wrong, hero. Dad liked you best. And she turns all of the, or he turns the surviving Amazons back over to the custody of the Marisville residents to put them in the prison and deprogram them, ostensibly. Yes, and then, but Lydia does say Nagada. <laughs> Wait, oh, right. It's <laughs> like, she doesn't actually say Nagada, does she? <laughs> no, just the sentiment. Um, but then they sort of, I guess, come to like a... Com it's sort of brushed over that they come to a compromise where like, they're going to be temporarily detained and deprogrammed yeah. rather than get go into a prison. Yeah. But of course, uh, Hiro has learned a thing or two from her escape artist brother and has secreted away a lockpick in her stomach. And then this is also the same time where we find out because Yorick and Dr. Mann and 355 have been working under the assumption that the Amazons burned down Dr. Mann's lab, but it was in fact the Israelis who are now in the US with their hijacked helicopter. Yes, a Black Hawk. At, at the behest of... Yes, of... <laughs> the mysterious woman who's giving them their of orders. Madam Director. <laughs> yes, exactly. Here's my question for you. In this sequence, the guards at the base... The, the exchange is a bunch of foreigners just stole a Black Hawk. And one of them says, what, Al-Qaeda's here? And the response is, no, they were talking Jewish, uh, Hebrew. Now, neither of us being Middle Eastern or Jewish and not speaking either one, do you think you could reliably differentiate between Arabic and Hebrew just hearing it 
especially in like a battle context no probably i don't think i could even just like from a helicopter (laughs) which is also firing a minigun (laughs) i don't think i could even just like if i was sitting next to a couple of people who were like having coffee i don't think i would be able to say like oh they're speaking hebrew and not arabic definitely i think if someone said here's a test for you listen to this audio clip and tell me if they're speaking hebrew or arabic i probably could but i think if i was just like overhearing people talking and then like five minutes later you said what language were they speaking hebrew or arabic i would not be able to answer with any confidence and now. i feel that we can safely assume that this particular soldier is not herself jewish uh, <laughs> like such that she would have like a cultural recognition of someone speaking hebrew just from like participation in you know cultural uh events <laughs> no because, because she, she said they were, they talking, were talking jewish, jewish <laughs> which seems like something not that a jewish person would say Anyways, 355 uh, finds York and consoles him and teaches him what the Rubicon <laughs> is. And gives him a haircut, which seems like, again, like why? It's the issue after this that we see him with the beard, right? Yes, that's correct. So in the course of, basically in the course of one issue, he gets a haircut and grows a beard, which are like two of the last things I would ever <laughs> do in this situation. <laughs> Like, why is he doing Yeah, this? I mean, I think by the time he grows the beard, it has reached the point where there's enough people walking around wearing fake beards, whether trans people or women who are choosing to present as male for the purposes of being sex workers on trains, <laughs> that seeing someone... The two, the two genders. <laughs> seeing someone with a beard doesn't instantly cause someone to be like, what the? A man survived! Yeah, but yes, he definitely, after this point, I think they sort of give up on the idea of like, he can never be seen by anyone not wearing a gas mask, I guess just because like, it's like, it's a very like movie thing where it's, it's like in Prometheus, how they all take off their helmets, like (laughs) 20 minutes in where it's like, well, we're not gonna have them wear the helmets the whole movie. (laughs) So it's like, we're not gonna keep them in the gas mask the whole movie. So at a certain point, we're just gonna say, screw it. He can just walk around normally. Yeah. And it's not like, you know, they, they're never really going through like densely populated areas for the most part. Maybe he would take greater care if they were, but like, yeah, he's kind of just riding the rails. Yeah. And then right at the end of this issue, we we get get the big reveal, which is that up in space, there are two surviving men on the International Space Station. On the, no, on on Soyuz. Oh, right. (laughs) The International Space Station question mark exists at this point? It's attached to the ISS, I think. It's like docked with the ISS. They they have like a Soyuz escape like module thing that they're planning to use to get back to Earth. We know a lot about yeah. space. We I love we love NASA. We love space, uh, and it's all good. Yeah, I think science is actually freaking awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I fucking love science. Sorry, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> um, uh, I just flipped past that page, which is a good good page, good reveal. Were you? Uh, what was your reaction when you discovered these uh, two fine gentlemen? Were you like, <gasps> or were you like, no? Hmm. It, it was not a you with York's butt situation. It was my <laughs> gasp. Um, no, I, well, I mean, like, I, I kind of saw that coming, like, by, I guess by, like, probably the second time that she appeared, I was like, oh, this is obviously teasing something, and obviously the thing it's teasing is space. there are astronauts, and <laughs> given what the book is about, it's probably safe to assume that there are men, and that's the idea of it, so I was not particularly shocked, um, but I was like, cool, like, this is gonna be the thing now. 
Indeed. Uh, I'm seeing from the sketchbook that I have at the back of my uh, deluxe edition that 355 was originally going to be white. Yes, I did see that as well. It's a, it is a, it's a diverse cast. It is a diverse cast, certainly. The, uh, it's funny also to see the, like, uh, she has the initial Pia Guerra's initial sketches for 355, which show her with a bunch of different hairstyles. And it is funny that we see her wear almost all of them over the course of the book because she just keeps growing her hair. Yes, that's the one thing I do like is sort of the idea that like time is passing and like the characters do change their appearances pretty significantly as time goes by, except mostly Dr. Man, I guess. <laughs> but like 355 and Yorick do look different they a shake lot of times, up, yeah. like from arc to arc. Uh, white 355 looks a lot like hero yes it just looks like a very like stock white person is, which true. perhaps uh how what do you think of pia Guerra's art uh to this to uh, well yeah after after this first chunk of issues i know we still have another arc to go through but yeah um i i like it i mean i don't again as we've talked about many times before it's hard for us to <laughs> differentiate art styles and sort of like what the specific nuances of a given person's art style are but I like it. Generally speaking, I so I like sort of like the the bold outlines. I guess mm-hmm. is what I like, and I, I I like the coloring as well, which I know is not her, but yes, the I believe the colorist is one of the only people who works on all sixty issues. Oh no, yes, it's the it. it's the inker. So this no, yeah, it's the inker. Oh yeah, maybe it's the inking as well that I'm talking. Yeah, about. Like it, it it all it has a very textured look, and there's often a lot of detail in like objects and things like that, which I like. Yeah. So the the three people who work on all sixty issues are Brian K. Vaughn, the writer, Clem Robbins, the letterer, and Jose Marzon Jr., the inker. Pia Guerra does forty four issues and periodically has um, some fill ins to basically let her get caught up. <laughs> And then as far as like the coloring, the covers, the editing, uh, the guard changes several times. Right. Well, and the in the first issue of One Small Step, it's colored by Pamela Rambo. 17 uh, credits to her name. Cheers. But yeah, so One Small Step, it starts with some Superman talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this has um, my favorite, my favorite like one panel joke. <laughs> in maybe the whole comic which is of 355 saying you can say fuck in comic books yes dude so what what comic is are they referring to that's a reference to preacher uh where uh the main character has a lighter that he got from his father who is a vietnam war veteran where all of the men in his like platoon had fuck communism lighters and and it's yeah it appears regularly it's used to like there's an issue where he like meets up and has a drink with uh, a member an old member of his father's platoon and he like puts the lighter on the bar and then the next panel is like another hand putting his lighter on the bar (laughs) which is the same and them being like "Eh?" (laughs) right turning to each other yes yeah so we get to uh does it specify the time jump here no but clearly there has been a time jump yes uh, a beard's worth of time has passed which uh as someone currently cultivating a so-so beard i can tell you is probably a good uh three months (laughs) oh i mean mean, looking at his beard i would say that it's been at least a year (laughs) (laughs) judging using your beard as a baseline that's cruel and hurtful my camera is off so you don't even know how good my beard currently is it could be even better than his beard it would be cool if you turned your camera on and revealed that you had like a giant beard like a james harden beard yes but i imagine that's not the case it, it don't try it in case our zoom yeah. once again dies 
Um, and speaking of beards, we then get to a self-identified woman with the worst fake beard. Yeah, uh, apparently made of her own hair clippings, which not really how beards work. Yeah, I I feel that uh, I I I mean it's it is funny that the whole joke of it is like oh yeah like your beard doesn't look good you should use your own hair uh, when it's like obviously it's his natural beard and that she tells yes, him the that, whole like, the whole joke is you look like a girl yeah like like you look like a you look like a girl but like you're close you almost pass <laughs> like, yes which he, is funny it's kind of funny yeah <laughs> it's, I can't it's deny, it. deny that it's it's a little funny. Um, <laughs> Well, we get the entrance of Natalia in this issue, which is really the the catalyst for everything that follows, because she is the the one who we've been seeing um, trying very hard to get to Kansas, because that's where the soy is is coming. But after after she and three fifty five have like a brief fight and then save each other's lives, kind of. Yes, and Natalia also has like a Russian gold star, like which a medal of honor, kind of military medal. basically. Yeah, Allied assault. Pardon? Airborne assault. Mm. Shoot, I need to confirm that. But go on. <laughs> yes, they they are able to pause and and talk, and she reveals. I mean, I guess it's fine because it's clear at this point. I think that three fifty five is like a government agent, but she reveals shockingly easily that she knows about two men who are uh, coming back down to Earth from outer space, which feels like something that would be national secret y. <laughs> Yeah, she is very quick to reveal that. And also, like, there are people who are not, who, who, like, would not take kindly to that information. So it does seem strange that she is so willing, she is so quickly to be like, there are men, there are men, to, like, just a random person who she is, like, in deadly combat with. Yes. Um, Of course, there was a Medal of Honor Allied Assault and a Medal of Honor Airborne. Mm. I'm not quite sure how that all shakes out. I was always confused as to how there were so many Medal of Honor games. <laughs> hey, remember SOCOM? SOCOM Navy SEALs, certainly. Yeah, that was a that game. was one of the earliest games to have online play with the PS2 network adapter. Yeah, I remember people being wild about SOCOM 2 when I was in high school. Okay, you want to hear how many Medal of Honor games there are before like the reboot? Sure, hit me. Wow, there's a Medal of Honor game last year from Respawn? That's not true. Whoa, this sounds good. <laughs> Medal of Honor Above and Beyond. Oh, it's like a VR game. Never oh, mind. Okay, I was going to say, is it published by EA? Because if so, uh, I'm going to go ahead and download that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 1999, Medal of Honor. Developed, of course, as we all know, by DreamWorks Interactive. Oh, man, was this like a Saving Private Ryan game? Oh, it was... Wait. Okay, hold on. Did you know that Medal of Honor was created by Steven Spielberg? Yes, I did, I think. I did not know about this. Um, wow, that's so funny. It was just, it was literally just a combination of, I'm Steven Spielberg and I'm into World War II, plus <laughs> I saw my son playing Goldeneye. <laughs> it, but, but it was like literally at the same time, because Saving Private Ryan, I think, is 1998. Hmm. Yeah, July 1998 is when Saving Private Ryan came out. So it must have been literally like at the same... He's like, I'm working on this movie, <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. Like, it's in post-production. Can we also do a video game? Blood and Gruesome Deaths were originally included, but they were removed due to Columbine. Interesting. Hmm. But yeah, so 1999, Medal of Honor. 2000, hmm. Medal of Honor Underground. 2002, Medal of Honor Allied Assault. Medal of Honor Frontline. And Medal of Honor Allied Assault Spearhead, which I guess is DLC. I guess. 2003, 
Medal of Honor Allied Assault Breakthrough, Medal of Honor Rising Sun, and Medal of Honor Infiltrator, which was only for the Game Boy Advance. 2004, Medal of Honor Pacific Assault, 2005, Medal of Honor European Assault, 2006, Medal of Honor Heroes, 2007, Medal of Honor Vanguard, Medal of Honor Airborne, and Medal of Honor Heroes 2. (laughs) Outrageous. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, four. So twelve games and two expansions in like a nine-year period. That's disgusting. And surprisingly, it ended up being slightly uh, oversaturated <laughs> the World War II shooter market. I think there were also a lot of Call of Duty games released early on. Anyways, we get uh, also the reveal that, uh, of course, Jennifer Brown was Madam Director all along, and she is revealing the information to Alter because. She has, like, lost faith in the Culper ring and is suspicious of 355. I don't I don't really get the purpose of this other than to explain, like, why Alter is around. Like, it doesn't really cast any genuine doubt onto 355 or, like, the Culper ring at large, I don't feel. No, it's definitely the idea. No, it's. I think we're definitely meant to understand that she is being, she's incorrect in her assessment Mm -hmm. it doesn't really explain why specifically she has to alter to do it like it's it's given a sort of quick explanation where it's like she doesn't trust anyone in the u.s and she had like a good working relationship with the person like the alters like mentor slash predecessor yes and like the and it's like the u.s is so messed up so you guys are doing well so we're gonna call you i think it's it works for me like it it seems justified that she believes that the culper ring has like some nefarious motives behind or besides like Yorick's best interest mm-hmm. and therefore wants to bring him back. It does also add a certain a certain degree of like ominousness when like a few pages later 355 says the culper ring is taking care of everything in regards to like decommissioning nuclear reactors. Oh yeah. Yeah, see I I never took it as anything more than like she well like the culper ring is obviously not entirely on the up and up perhaps but like i i've i don't ever think i had doubts about 355's motives right so basically throughout the the course of like this storyline we have several parties all kind of converging on each other there's so there's obviously like the main the main crew who are headed to um uh, a hot suite where the uh landing astronauts will be able to be kept in like basically like a biosecure environment uh, until they figure out what the whole deal is. Yes, and they were ordered to land. They were told to land there by the Russians. Yeah, and then we have Alter's crew making their way there, having gotten the coordinates from Jennifer Brown, and there's some there's there's some stirring in the ranks about whether or not this is a good idea and the number of narrow misses that <laughs> this group has had with catching up to Yorick. Uh, Sadie uh, is, is very sassy to alter in front of all of the other IDF ladies, and she's unappreciative. And we also find out from the from Yorick's mother that the re- the way that they're able to follow them is that ampersand has a tracking device right implanted inside of him right and then lastly we have the astronauts themselves who are making a fairly risky return to earth in like uh, a pod that is like overdue <laughs> for maintenance basically <laughs> yes there's some science involved in there's, there's there is some science involved but basically they're they're not really sure if they're going to make it but we see them kind of throughout making their preparations and then doing the launch 
back down to Earth. So they all kind of converge at the same time. The hot suite is run by these twins who are very interested in Yorick uh, on account of being geneticists. Yes, and <laughs> Yorick, when Yorick first sees them, he thinks that they might be clones, which yes, is funny. which is funny. So... Natalia and 355 are lured out by the Israelis blowing up uh, a tractor, which they think is the Soyuz coming down early. But we learn is, in fact, of course, a trap for the IDF forces to uh, raid the hot suite and capture Yorick. He uh, cunningly convinces them to leave your, um, Ampersand behind, which good bit. Because she has AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> like, like. What did what an insane joke to make in a comic book, but also what an insane thing to say, like <laughs> about this monkey that I have. Yeah. Like, don't take my pet monkey. She has AIDS. Three fifty five and Natalia realize their mistake quickly enough that they are able to double back and get the drop on a couple of the uh, IDF soldiers uh, and capture one of their radios. Yes, and before this also, um, Natalia gets shot. And also, there, I, I, I do like this scene a lot where 355 is like getting shot at by this Israeli soldier who clearly like does not really want to be a part of this, it seems like. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird because it, just to like go back on the whole, the whole altar thing, like we have heard that their military is sufficiently competent that they've been able to like pacify their enemies in Israel and expand Israel's borders question mark but she came on this operation with people who her second in command describes as barely field rated and who don't seem to have like any combat experience whatsoever so it's kind of confusing of like are you taking this so seriously that you're ready to come personally or are you taking it so not yes it is it's it's a little muddled for sure, but I, I really like the sequence where like 3D5 basically has a gun to her head and then she is just like saying English words like, oh yeah, like shouting the like tourist expressions that she knows. Yes, she's saying, take me to my hotel. How much does this cost, please? Where's the library? <laughs> Which subway? And then I guess... And then 355 shoots her in the head. <laughs> yeah, Which, I guess that's Dark the moment for 355, certainly. Um, but yes, and then we go back to what you were talking about, where she makes this agreement, uh, and uh, a duplicitous <laughs> agreement. A duplicitous agreement, yes. She convinces Alter that she's willing to do it uh, because she's in love with Yorick. Yes, and then, yes, and then we, of course, again, that's what I was talking about with the, it, the these teases towards some kind of connection between 355 and Yorick as as untrue mm -hmm. as those as those uh connections may be yes uh and then everything comes to a head at this point where you have the the yorick part where well i mean you can you can lay it out maybe a little better well yeah so there's there's they they both agree to make the trade and they're both planning to double cross it and presumably both also know that the other one is planning to double cross it but there you have it. So you have, yes, 355 and Dr. Mann who go out to the ostensible landing site. And then a couple of IDF uh, or, or several IDF soldiers like lying in wait ready to ambush because the agreement is that uh, they'll make the trade after the the pod has come down. Uh, and then you have Yorick back at the Blackhawk still being detained by uh, Sadie with uh, anti-pickable <laughs> or unpickable Mossad handcuffs. And then they see the Soyuz coming down. 
Dr. Man says it's raining men and 355 responds, hallelujah, which is is the same, excellent, same bit again, where it's like (laughs) the big impact panel has a song reference that has the word man in it. But this one is good. still funny. (laughs) It is raining men. I love this one. Like I said, this I feel that this is the arc where it really finds its legs and it's not because it's doing anything differently or it's suddenly discovered like a new uh, level of nuance. There's lots of like nuanced things in the series and throughout the story, but I wouldn't say by and large that nuance or subtlety is like the go-to move uh, in this, no, I would <laughs> in this not. story. It's a fable as we all know. But I would say that this is the storyline where all that stuff just starts like really hitting. Like he just, I don't know, he just seems like he like kind of figures it out, puts it together. Some of the more like egregious stuff uh, is put aside. And now like when he makes a reference, it feels like a little more worth it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, like I also think that the central conceit of this arc is a lot more interesting, at least to me, than the previous two were. Like, I mean, they're all they're all sort of ideas that we've seen before less so this one but sort of like the town where everything isn't quite right and there's a big secret is obviously like a very common thing but this one i i i like the basic idea of it more than the previous two for sure i mean the first arc is really just like table setting for the most part and it yeah definitely and it does have more of a swamp thing vibe like you were sort of talking (laughs) about in terms of like it's it's grittiness and it's sort of nastiness than mm-hmm. the subsequent arcs do. Yes. Anyways, the Soyuz pot is coming down. Alter pulls out a javelin <laughs> missile uh, to the shock of Sadie, who is like, why would you do that? And this is where she reveals the plan that we re- alluded to earlier, that she intends to basically force a war with the United States for the purpose of keeping Israel united with a, a sort of shared vision and purpose. But York is able to throw the missile off course by strangling her with his handcuffs before she gets the shot off. And also, well, and also that she's doing this because it's more valuable. Right. It's more valuable than, for them to have the only yeah. man who they already have in their possession. This is so she misses, but uh, springs her trap on Dr. Man and 355, who we learn have lured them to a fake landing site, which puts them right in the line of fire for Natalia, who is, uh, I assume, five miles away with her <laughs> sniper rifle. Who is pilot. She is, she is big pilot energy here. We do see individual <laughs> fingers getting shot off. Yeah, it's funny to to go back to the art for a bit. I feel in in reading the interviews, Pia Guerra talks a lot about how she prefers to do the action sequences. And especially early on in the book, she felt really out of her depth with like kind of the talking heads sequences where it was just like a lot of dialogue or a lot of conversation. But at this point in the book, like not that the, the action in these scenes is fine, but I just I, it seems like it relies a lot on like physicality and body language and I think and perspective and those are three things that I would say are kind of among the weaker elements of her art whereas for example like the earlier sequence with Natalia weirdly undressing in the back of the truck with Yorick a bizarre sequence oh yes another like (laughs) yeah for sure there's the Um, but like the the visual storytelling in that sequence I find really good and, and like she did something similar, I think, in the first issue when it shows him getting out of the straitjacket while he's hanging upside down. 
the panel to panel changes are fairly small, but I just feel like she makes the most in terms of like the decision making and yeah, just just showing that progression in a way that like the art isn't necessarily calling attention to itself. But if you're paying like any attention beyond the like the dialogue in the panel and not just like flying through, there is like a second layer that uh, it, it's yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is that for as unsubtle as Vaughn sometimes is in the writing, she knows exactly when to exercise subtlety in the art. But at the same time, like I feel a scene that that doesn't have, <laughs> you know, an action scene is obviously in its nature not subtle, and I feel that it doesn't play as much to her strengths. Although the, you know, the faces on these three uh, IDF soldiers, despite all looking, they look like triplets. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Are good. Yeah, I find she usually, she she does do expressive faces yeah, for it's, sure. it's just interesting to hear her talk about how much more comfortable she is with action as opposed to that talking head stuff. Whereas I feel like the, the talking head stuff, especially as the series goes on, becomes quite a strong point for her. We get to see lots of uh, lots of Wally Woods twenty two panels that always work. You know what that? No, you don't know what that is. It's uh, basically Wally Wood is like a very famous artist, particularly for his work with EC in the fifties. But when he was working at Marvel, he put together this thing that he would share with assistants, uh, and there's like a popular version that Larry Hama made to explain it as well, called the twenty two panels that always work for when there's like not a lot of action happening in a panel, and you just need kind of like something to put in that is sort of visually dynamic but not like reinventing the wheel. And so it's just like you could if you Google twenty two panels that always work, you'll see it. But it's just like a bunch of samples of uh, of panels that are like. If you if you read a lot of uh, comics with talking heads, you'll <laughs> appreciate that a lot of artists probably have this like pinned up to a cork board right by where they work, so that every time they're like, "Oh, three pages of dialogue." Yeah, let me see here. <laughs> like, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting like glimpse into the like the artist's toolkit for keeping scenes that are, might be difficult for the artist uh, to to keep things visually interesting and visually dynamic to inject that into scenes that are fairly dialogue heavy with not really a lot of action. But yeah, I think that's an area where she grows and, and improves a fair bit. Yes. Panel number one, big head. Yeah, love big head, <laughs> extreme close up. Uh, all black is another, another personal fave. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I'm trying to remember what he says about it, but the one that, oh, uh, no border, like full object or full vehicle. Uh, is right. one that I like a lot. Anyways, <laughs> the Soyuz uh, crashes down. Uh, yeah. So then we. So this is the last issue, the issue fifteen. Yeah. So it's it's like it's sort of a triple flip here because the the cover of the issue <laughs> is as we previously mentioned a skeleton in an astronaut suit. Yeah. Great cover. And I, even going into this, I was like, this could be like a flip could or it something. could be, yes, this could be foreboding or it could be trying to impart forebodingness, but actually it's going to be okay. So I, it, I, I think it does a good job of like having that mystery element to it. Mm -hmm. Like, because especially with comics, like the, but in a twist, it actually went wrong is such a common thing because, because like comics are serialized. And so you can't have when it seems like something is going to go right, you often cannot have the thing go right. right. So the twist is that it goes wrong. But by sort of setting up that something could go wrong, you throw into question more 
whether it's going to go right. Right. And then you, yes, you have the triple flip of you have that cover and then you have the big like cover sort of splash page or the title splash page is they made it. Yeah. Which with is one of the astronauts as yeah. one of the astronauts is getting out. But then you have the flip of the flip, which is the pod explodes. And, and because they're wearing like the um, mirrored helmet, you can't see which of the surviving astronauts made it out for several pages. Yes, but you can <laughs> you can probably guess what happened because <laughs> of dramatic irony. Yes. Um, I, I think this is like what they sort of allude to earlier, that there's like some kind of like corroded fuel or something like that. Yeah, they do. They, they, which causes a fire. Yeah, uh, and causes the pod to explode. Sadie is allowed to leave and take the other uh, IDF soldiers, including Alter, back to Israel um, to face court-martial, and we learned that the surviving astronaut was Seba, the one female astronaut, who the two men forced to leave because, as all three of them knew, she was pregnant. Oh, I do not like this. I don't... I just... The idea that it's like... I mean, again, it, it, maybe it's this specific woman, but it feels like such a, like, a trope. The idea that it's like, a woman and two men in space, and she loved them both. Mm-hmm doesn't know which one the father is yes like that seems like a very like a a thing to happen to a woman in a comic (laughs) yeah that's uh that's fair yeah i i like the dramatic tension i guess of of like i i just like the resolution of the arc i guess introducing two men who both die but then also planting planting a seed if you'll forgive the expression um not (laughs) of hope in in the form of this baby the gender of which is unknown yes this part also reminded i guess this is more Ooh, this is more um something that is in the tv show rather than the comic i'm pretty sure but in the walking dead there's also like the end of the first season of walking dead the only season i watched (laughs) has that like underground lab as well right yeah i i don't remember what all that stuff is about (laughs) it's some kind of like virology research lab as well yeah so we we end the issue and the storyline. Well, hold on, hold okay. on. Three fifty five says the n word. <laughs> well, yeah, which means that Brian K. Vaughn says the n word. I mean, I think three fifty five has already been called the n word a couple times. She has. Uh, yeah, I I do read this and I'm like, okay, a white writer putting the n word in the mouth of a black character in a way that is like, it's okay because she's saying it, and I'm like, I don't but know. But it's also like. Yeah, it's like I, I, I'm, there are lots of black women who probably would say that comfortably, even to like a white guy, because like they're yes. friendly with them. But I'm just, I don't know, just something about like a white writer putting it in, you, the word, think, in the mouth of a black character. I'm always kind of like, Ugh. yes. And I think even bigger is like using it as an impact statement, especially because like she hasn't use that word before and it's like a serious conversation and it's meant to like break the tension in that way so like he like he knows what he's doing by having her say that yeah and and especially for a character like 355 who up to this point has been extremely like i guess professional is the like yeah yeah or or buttoned up is a, a good way to put it too like she hasn't hesitated to rib york a little bit but this is the first time that you see them interact kind of like as friends as opposed to as like the government agent and the like high value target that she's been assigned to protect basically. Yeah. But anyways, she says that to dismiss the idea that uh, when she claimed to love Yorick uh, and he overheard that that had any uh, placement in truth. But of course 
the cunning use of the beat panel suggests to us that maybe there's a little more to it than either of them is willing to admit. No, I just don't know. Who can say? Who can say? Yeah, but <laughs> what was that? I said, "Who can say? Who can say?" <laughs> ah, of course. But yes, like you said, I do. I do like the resolution here, where uh, she is pregnant. So there is that possibility. We don't know the sex of the child, but because she was, you know, in her spacesuit and brought into the bio lab she it it will be possible for this baby to be born uh and then you have and yes so this is like a very comic book kind of wrap-up thing where you're taking pieces off the board so to speak yeah so you're having natalia stay yeah at the lab to protect the the baby and protect the lab yeah uh so 355 and yorick and dr man will continue on alone as they as they started it is it is a very neat uh, little wrap-up the israelis are headed back to israel uh where where uh alter is presumably going to be court-martialed and they sever their ties with uh jennifer brown who is demanding to know what has happened to yorick when lo and behold hero appears dun 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 end of issue end of arc shoe Yes, and so that is the conclusion of the uh, our, our allotted <laughs> coverage of this book so far. Um, I will say this was a far easier read than Swamp Thing. Not only just because oh, yeah, it's, it like flies by comparison. Yeah, not only just because like I think it's a better comic, but because like I think it's just not as like dialogue dense because like. Truly, I was... Yeah, I think the thing that really is a difference maker is that there's no narration. Yes, that too. And just like, yeah, there's more empty panels and less dialogue in the panels. Like, you could see, because like, when I finished the first trade, because I was planning to read like the first 10 issues last night and then finish this morning, but ended up like doing most of it last night. And I like, when I finished the first trade, I was like, wow, it's done already. And I was sort of like looking at the sort of the zoomed out pages themselves and it's like i was like oh it's because like these pages are just less dense and packed with stuff than the swamp thing pages are like it i would almost guarantee it took me less time to read 15 issues of this which was like probably like 400 pages or something um i don't know if that math checks out but but (laughs) yeah it's definitely it's it's easier reading for sure like i said i think he especially once he hits his stride like Uh, One small step is like a very, it's like a smooth glass of uh, your beverage of choice (laughs) after, after Swamp Thing, I have to say. Yes. And again, like it's, it's very similar in a lot of ways, which makes it interesting that it sort of flows. It's just, yeah, I think it's, it's basically what we talked about. Like you, you could see, or you, I guess looking at it now, you can see where in his work on Swamp Thing, the kind of potential for a story like this to come out was there and it was just a matter of him maturing a bit as a writer and and getting maybe it was a matter of confidence maybe it was a matter of kind of experience and knowing when to kind of like pull back a little bit and exercise some of that subtlety that we have (laughs) discussed but and also i think we talked about this last episode like the idea of being bogged down by the lore bogged um oh yeah swamped indeed right um having that level of backstory to have to deal with, especially like you think about Tefe's backstory and like how complicated <laughs> it is and like how many different yeah, players are a part of that between like Constantine and Mary Conway and all that stuff. Like before you even get to her actual like swampy origins, it just, it, it feels a lot 
easier to digest. And uh, and certainly without Swamp Thing, we wouldn't have uh, Why the Last Man, not only because of all those things, but because it's his relationship with Heidi McDonald who edited Swamp Thing that she she is like what have you got for like original stuff? Like you, we could give you another book, like bring me some pitches and like, let's make it happen. And this is what, this is what he brought her. And then she connected him with Pia Guerra and then it, and then it kind of went from there. And then uh, by the sounds of it, she was fired fairly unceremoniously mm. <laughs> on like issue Cheers. four. It's <laughs> so, like, thanks for bringing us this mega hit. And now time for you to go and become best known for running uh, the long running comics block, the beat. Indeed. Pia Guerra, my second favorite Canadian Canadian Pia. <laughs> Who's number one? Pia Chattafada. Oh, I thought you were going to say Papa Pia. <laughs> my all-male uh, reworking of Mamma Mia, of course. <laughs> I know you didn't say that for my benefit, but, but it still made me mad. <laughs> so, yep, there it is. I've already done a bit of... Oh, Pia uh, Chattafada is hosting the Sunday edition now? Interesting. Now called the Sunday Magazine. Oh, wait, what? Sunday Magazine, really? Yeah, it's like a news magazine. Ugh. That's normal. As long as they're still running Wiretap, I'm fine. Tune in for our, our CBC Radio talk uh, we should behind do a the CBC. paywall. We should do a CBC Radio History podcast. We'll be reviewing every, every show episode in of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> we will be doing the debaters ourselves. Anyways. Oh, that would actually be good. That would be better than <laughs> I, the debaters. That's a... Oh, I don't know if that's true. Debaters is usually fairly funny. Debaters has a high batting average. I'm probably just thinking of the other comedy program CBC has attempted to put out in recent Truly. years. You be you because news guy at all? Oh no, I can't say that I am. Well, Not... I mean, you can tell just from the title. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, we have already uh, spoiled awards talk. Nominated for best new series, it lost out. I think it lost out to a Bendis uh, property in both cases. Oh no, Rubbernecker by Nick Bertozzi is the winner of the Harvey, I believe, which tracks the winner in the Eisners is Fables uh, by <laughs> by Bill Wilmingham, uh, Mark Buckingham, and many others. I'm just laughing because I was trying to remember why I referenced uh, fables, fables earlier. earlier. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Because. <laughs> oh, it's because it's a. Because I was saying, wait fable. until they, yeah, wait until they get their hands on fables. It's funny that they came out the same year. It's a seriously funny, nuanced fable. Right. Also nominated, interestingly, is Nowhere Girl, which is a webcomic. The unusual nomination for the webcomic outside of the best webcomic category. Anyways, sales-wise, again, I think uh, I think I talked, spoiled this already, but debuted to roughly 15,000, dropped off, had recouped those sales by number six. By the time number 15 comes out, it's pulling over 20,000. So like uh like we said oh sorry when i say over 20,000 i of course mean 27,000 so coming close at this point to doubling its original sales numbers which is like fairly unheard of for uh for a single run so yeah it, it like i said it seemed to have come out to fairly immediate acclaim if not necessarily adoration but i think i think that those growing numbers are reflective of how the the story improves as it goes yeah good stuff though next week we are going to be moving into the next three storylines can't remember buddy uh i I truly don't remember it's weird it's yeah it's broken down kind of uh weirdly compared to a book like saga that he does now where it's literally just like every six issues is a story arc 
this one has more kind of like one-off issues or sort of filler issues. But next week, we will be covering... (laughs) Tap, tap, tap. We'll be covering issues 16 to 31. Right, of course, which will include the... Issue 16. Yeah, issue Issue 17. Issue 18. (laughs) Issues 16 and 17, which feature respectively Christopher's favorite cover and my favorite cover in the series to this point certainly indeedy well yeah i think i think we're off to a good start here it is uh, it's intimidating thinking about how much vaughn we're going to be covering for the next like 20 weeks i'm fairly excited about it like i I, like i said why is like one of the kind of like seminal stories for me as a comics fan and a comics reader I'm really excited to get to Ex Machina, which I haven't read in several years now, but I have for a long time said is my favorite Vaughn, which I think is a fairly controversial opinion. But so I'm excited to revisit it for the first time in a long time uh, and get into it. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, I feel better about it than I necessarily did with Scott McCloud, where I had read some of it, but not all of it. And, you know, s- certain titles had somewhat shaky reputations <laughs> <laughs> where, yeah, it was kind of like, I'm not sure week to week how much I'm going to like something. I feel like with Vaughn, especially now that we're past Swamp Thing, I've read most of this stuff at least once before and really enjoyed pretty much all of it. So it's just kind of a, a nice tour through a bunch of books that I already know I like, which is nice. Yeah, I mess with it. All right, well, time for my classic outro. (laughs) Um, Thank you, everyone, for joining us along this journey. Please remember to uh, fumigate and extricate on iTunes. It really helps us. That's my new thing is I I tell people people to do random verbs on iTunes (laughs) in order to boost our numbers. I see. It really helps us out with the algorithm. Public health has told us that if we don't have our roach situation resolved (laughs) by next week, they will be taking the podcast down. So (laughs) our podcast is spreading (laughs) bed bugs to other podcasts. So so please fumigate us on iTunes. (laughs) Uh, This is a bizarre concept. Oh, it's a good bit. Um, Yes, but just keep remembering to do all the things that you're doing. And... Until next time, to be continued. I'm sure that'll sync up perfectly. All right, see you next time. Goodbye.